When we were there, we talked about some things in regard to what was going on. We understand that they've been wandering in the wilderness, been there for 40 years. They've now approached uh, uh, the, the, the actual entrance into the promised land. They have to cross over the River Jordan. We know there's a lot of things that are going on there, and we've talked about several things so far this year. But we want to continue our thoughts and continue thinking about some things in regard to what we have here in the book of uh, Joshua chapter number 3. Now, as we think about these things tonight and think about these thoughts, we, as we had looked at Joshua chapter 3 before, we thought about the fact that there were some insurmountable or at least seemingly insurmountable things that, that actually did not circumscribe or keep God from being able to uh, do the things that he really and truly needed to do. But, but when you look at it and you think about it, you know, a lot of times we think about the, the Jordan River, and I've heard people say, you know, especially when they were talking about the, the concept of the Jordan River, and that's where John was baptizing, and, and they thought about, you know, baptism for immersion. You say, where are you going, preacher? Well, they said the Jordan River was so small that, that John couldn't possibly bury folks in there, so dipping and, you know, all of those kinds of things, pouring and all of that, was necessary. Well, the Jordan River was more than that. If you were here two weeks ago, I showed you a picture of the Jordan River. Not just a picture of the Jordan River, I showed you some video of the Jordan River. And the Jordan River, as it was flooding and as it was rushing down, and I let that play, and I hope that made an impact on your mind when you thought about what these folks had to face as they were going. The Jordan River, when it was flooded, could get as much as half a mile wide. But God was able to stop it some 20 miles upstream and allow them to be able to cross over on dry land. So God was not circumscribed. He, he wasn't hemmed in. He wasn't stopped by what might seem to be an insurmountable uh, obstacle. But I want us to go back there to the book of Joshua chapter 3. And I want us to learn some other things tonight. At least one. We're going to focus our attention. We're going to pay primary attention to one thought tonight as we build our lesson around it, and we'll eventually get there, but let's go back to Joshua chapter 3. We talked about those insurmountable objects, but look at verse number 13 again with me. Joshua chapter 3, verse 13, when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the, the Lord uh, of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. The waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Now, think about that verse again. When the soles of the feet of the priest, when it stopped, the, the waters would stop, it would build up. Can I ask you a question tonight? Why did the water stop flowing? Was it because of the priest? You know, the Bible says when they walked off in there, was it because of the priest that the water stopped flowing? Or maybe it wasn't the priest, was it the ark? You know, they were carrying the ark of the Lord. Maybe it was the ark that they were carrying, and, and when they stepped off into the water, the water stopped flowing 20 miles away and built up on heaps. Maybe, maybe it was the ark, or maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was God. Really and truly, I would put a check mark beside that one and say, this is the reason that the water stopped flowing. That's what we read in verse 13 of that chapter. The Bible speaks about the water stopping its flowing. But 
having read that, you're going to think we're jumping around. Let's go back in that chapter, earlier in it, look at verses 2 through 5. In verses 2 through 5, you know, we, we want to think about God being the one who, who did that, who stopped it. But in verses 2 through 5, at the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. There shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go. For you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. As you look at that passage and you think about try to take in what is, what is there, you began to ask a question, you know, as these people are commanded, when the priests leave, we know that the waters are going to stop later on, but when the priests leave and we're to follow them. And as they go, may I ask you why? Why was it that they were to follow these? Well, notice two things there. They had not passed that way before. They didn't really know where they were going, and so they were being led. They had to have some direction. They were being led. But again, as you look at that and you think about it, I want you to focus on verse number 4. Think about what is said in verse number 4. I just made it a little bit bigger and made it stand out and highlighted some things there. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Why was it that they were following the priest who were carrying the ark? Well, somebody says it's obvious. They didn't know where they were going, so they had to do that. But even more important than that, why was there a distance? Why was there a distance? They're following that ark being carried by the priest. When they step off in the water, the water's going to stop flowing. Twenty miles to the north of them, it'll stop, it'll heap up, and it'll flow on down. They'll be able to walk across on dry land. If you remember what we said a while ago, it wasn't because of the priest. It wasn't because of the ark. It was because of God. Why was there a distance? Some 2,000 cubits, the Bible says, as you look at that. Well, again, you said, well, it's obvious. The text tells us they didn't know where they were going, and so they, they needed to follow. But, but I, I just got to make a point right here. What if I said tonight that I want you to follow me to Jerry Shelton's house? Now, most of you don't know Jerry Shelton, but he visited with us. He was an elder in Tennessee, but he visited with us with his wife, Janice, and, and uh, they were here back in the fall. They had come down. They're originally from Arkansas. They're Tennessee fans, but they came and they watched Alabama play football. Okay? Now, that just tells you how messed up this story's going to get. All right? But what if I said, I want you to follow me to Jerry's house? How many think you could follow me to Jerry's house? You've never been. You don't know where he lives. I didn't tell you what town he lived in. I just said he was an elder in Tennessee. How many think you could follow me to Jerry's house? Raise your hand if you think you could follow me to Jerry's house. Now, James says he could follow me. All right, now, some other brave souls are raising your hand. Well, that's what they were told to do. They were told to follow these priests carrying this ark. 
What if I said, line up out here in the parking lot because we're going to go to Jerry's house and you're going to follow me to Jerry's house? Could you do that? Could you just follow those directions? For the brave souls who said they could follow me, they could probably get in their car and they'd be ready. What if I told you to stay in your car, I'm going to go ahead, but wait until I get down to the bridge, going down the hill before you leave? Could you still follow me? Now that's about the distance that God told the people to follow behind the ark. That's about the distance. And so again, why were they following? But even more importantly, why the distance? And that's what I want us to get. He gives them, he's specific. He says, stay 2,000 cubits away from it. There shall be a distance between you. What I want you to see tonight is this. If I can get this to change for me. God is holy. God is holy. Two passages that I'll just bring to your attention. You know them well, but I want to bring them back to your mind. Exodus chapter 3 at verse 5. Whenever Moses was standing close to the burning bush, do you remember what God said? Take off your sandals. Why? Because the ground you're standing on is holy. God is holy. Man has a hard time approaching God because of the holiness of God. Another passage, that one is found in the book of Exodus chapter 3 at verse 5, but still in the book of Exodus chapter 19 at verse number 12. Do you remember when God came down upon the mountain as he was preparing to give the law? That there was thundering and lightning, the people were afraid, but God had prepared them. He said, you know, basically he told them to wash their clothes, to sanctify themselves, to get ready. But, but something in particular that he says in Exodus chapter 19 at verse 12, it just really stands out. He says to them, he says, you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. But notice what he says next. Take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Why? God is holy. That's significant tonight. I believe it's significant when we think about this, this distance between the ark and, and, and the people. God is holy. What's our point tonight? Things that are holy must not be treated as if they're common. The ark is holy. They, they had to keep their distance. They had to keep their distance from God. Moses had to pull his shoes off in order to approach near to God. The people could not touch the mountain because God was there. Things that are holy must be treated as holy and not as though they are common. Now, a couple of passages that you might want to look at. One is found in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 22, at verse number 26. The Bible says, Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. 
And they have disregarded my Sabbath so that I am profaned among them. God was not happy with the way his people were acting. He wasn't happy with his priests. They had started treating everything as if everything was normal. They had started treating everything as if it was equal. They had started treating everything as though they had a right to make up their own mind about it. They had made no distinction between what was holy and what was profane. They had made no distinction between what God had declared to be clean and what he had declared to be unclean. God was not pleased with that. You see, God had always been concerned with his character, part of which is that he is holy. And as much as we seek to be holy, we cannot approach into his holiness. Do you remember what the angel said? As Isaiah writes about it in the book of Isaiah chapter 6, as he was brought into the presence of God, they kept saying what? Three words. Holy. Holy, holy. There were some people back in Ezekiel's day that couldn't tell the difference. And God was not pleased with it. You know what? I suggest to you today that there are a lot of folks in our world today, I'm not sure it's that they can't tell the difference, but they choose not to between the holy and the profane. Between the holy, that which is good and right and like God, And that which is not like God, that which is opposite of God, that which is against what God teaches us. What did God want? Well, stay in that book of Ezekiel. Look at chapter 44, if you will, verse 23. This is what he tells the priests that they need to be doing. He gives them some instructions about marriage and different things, but here's one of the instructions that he gives them. He says, They shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the common and show them how to distinguish between the unclean and the clean. I'm convinced we need more sermons on holy and profane in our world today. We, we have fail to see and understand and regard that which is holy. We have failed sometimes to keep 2,000 cubits between us and what God has established. Not so that we won't obey it, but because we won't transgress it. We won't defile it. We need to be very careful. And so today, as we think about that, as I look at that ark, I see that that they're told to keep their distance. They're to stay 2,000 cubits back. And the only reason I can figure out, it's not because God wanted them to follow. That's not a good following place. You know, if they just don't know where they're going, half a mile away, you're going to have a hard time keeping up with it and watching and seeing and being able to know where you're going. When you look at it from the standpoint of God and who He is, and the distance that he requires between that which is clean and unclean, that which is profane and that which is holy, you begin to catch on to some things here. But I want to remind you tonight that when we're thinking about that which is holy and that which is common, I want us to understand that even God's name is to be kept holy. Even God's name is to be kept holy. Now you think about that very carefully. Even God's name 
is to be kept holy. Psalm 111, verse 19, the Bible says, Psalmist writes, he says, He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy, English Standard Version, and awesome is his name. Holy and awesome is his name. Exodus chapter 20 verse 7 is even more to the point, and you'd recognize it probably even more. It's within what we know as the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses. He says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. As you think about that verse tonight, what does it mean to take the name of the Lord our God in vain? The word vain means empty. In that passage, it's like it does in a lot of passages. What does he mean by taking the name of the Lord our God in vain? Basically this, to make it as though it's empty or worthless. To not count it as holy. Even the name of God is to be kept holy. But tonight, as you think about that, and we start to tie some things together and hopefully make this lesson live in our own lives tonight, how do we take the name of the Lord our God in vain? Well, that's a good question. Folks have answered it in different ways, various ways. Some people say, well, you know the way we take the Lord our God's name in vain is to cuss. And some cuss. And you know, I'm not going to say the words tonight. But you know what I'm talking about. They literally take God's name and damn the name of God. Sometimes we just shorten that. And he said, they said the GD word. Do you think that's taking the name of the Lord our God in vain? Well, in a, in a very literal sense, yes. It's making it empty. It's counting as though... It is of no value whatsoever that he himself is of no greater consequence that he himself, his own name, is no different than anybody else that's out here on the street, old Joe or somebody like that. Some people cuss and they take the name of the Lord in vain. But there's other ways, I think, of taking the name of the Lord our God in vain. Some people use euphemisms. That's a long word. What does it mean? Well... Let me just see if I can explain it in this way. O-M-G. Have y'all ever seen that or heard that? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand tonight if you've said that. But if you have, you have used a euphemism. Oh my God. What value did you ascribe to the name of God when you used that phrase? How valuable did you hold his name up to be? How much did you set it apart and say, Here is my God who is worthy of all praise? When you used that phrase. And what makes you think it's any better to profane the name of God to make it worth less 
using phrases of that nature than it would be to use the G-D words and cuss. I don't know about y'all. I think more of my Heavenly Father than that. I hold Him in higher esteem than that. Well, preacher, I didn't mean anything by it. You don't have to answer to me. I'm not the one who's going to be your judge. I just said it because everybody else says it. It's just an accepted phrase. You remember what we read back in Ezekiel? They can't even tell the difference between what's holy and what's profane. And God told his priests, he said, here's the job. I want you to explain it to folks and help them to be able to understand the difference. Hopefully that's what we're trying to do in lessons like this. Sometimes we use euphemisms. Not just OMG, but sometimes you see the word, hear the word, words such as gosh. Just a shortening, or in this case, lengthening of the word for God. And again, when we think about taking the name of the Lord our God in vain, we can do it by cussing. We can do it by euphemisms. But you know what? As common as that is, I'm not sure that that's, those two are the most common ways that we take the name of the Lord our God in vain. Well, preacher, how else could we do that? Well, let me put another, a number three up there. Some do it by where they go and what they do. It's not just what they say, but it's where they go and what they do, how they act. I guess you might say it in those terms. Look, if you will, and I don't have this on the screen, but I want you to turn to the book of Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And I intentionally didn't put it on the screen because I want you to see it in your own Bible. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Paul is writing about Jesus. He's speaking about the fact that he has, was in heaven, that he did not count it uh, uh, something to be held on to, to be equal with God. And There's the whole thing. We've got to have the same mind as Christ had. But, but Paul writes something else there in Philippians chapter 2. Look at, again, verses 9 and 10. Therefore God has highly exalted him, talking about Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Would you agree with me tonight that the name of Jesus, the name of God, that God gave his Son, Jesus... Christ, ever how you want to use it, would you agree with me that it's special? I mean, you, you can hardly read that passage by 
and not think that it's special in some way. And it's not just the, the, the letters in the, that go together to form a word. That's not what he's talking about. It's his character. It's everything that he stands for. It's the fact that he is who he is. But then may I ask you to turn to another passage as you think about that one. This one's found in the book of Acts, chapter 11, at verse 26. There the Bible says, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. Talking about Saul and, and Barnabas there. When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. I want you to understand tonight that's not a term of derision. Some have tried to claim that, well, the disciples were called Christians because people were making fun of them. No, there was a name that was promised in the Old Testament. We would be called by His name. The name that God esteems as special. The disciples, the followers of Christ, were called Christians. Why are we called Christians? Why are we called Christians? We identify, have been identified, were identified by God in that way because we are like His Son. We become children of God. We wear the family name. We're Christians. How does where I go and what I do profane the name of God? Have you ever found yourself in a place where you made a statement sort of like this? I sure hope Jesus doesn't come while I'm here. Now, why'd you say something like that? Because I'm afraid he wouldn't come here to get me, to take me home. Well, what do you mean by that? I know I shouldn't be there. Because sinful things go on. And I know I shouldn't be there. <coughs> but your friend saw you there. And even if it's somebody who never even met you before, they saw you go there. Would they think Christ would be there with you? By where they go and what they do. Have you ever done something that you were ashamed of? 
Well, most people have at one time or another in their life. And uh, they wish they had the opportunity to go back and just undo it all. Unfortunately, we can't do that. What we can do is quit doing it now. Right? We don't have to keep on doing those shameful, sinful things, do we? Sometimes we do, don't we? When we intentionally keep on doing wrong things... I bring shame on the family name. But it's not just my name, folks. Bringing shame on the family name that God has given us. I have profaned the name that God gave me. I am not keeping 2,000 cubits between me and the ark. I have failed to recognize that which is holy, that which is common. And I need to start grasping the concept You see, it doesn't take a cuss word. And if there are any English teachers here, yes, I know you can put an R and take off one of the S's and make it a curse word. Okay? But we all know what we're talking about, and we got the point when we start talking about cuss words, don't we? Somehow they seem worse than curse words. And that's what folks do around here. Not here in this building, but you know in Alabama. Maybe you can convince me. You know, if you tried real hard, I've heard people argue, well, you know, OMG, gosh, you know, those those kind of words. Uh, You know, it really doesn't make a whole lot of difference. But it's hard to argue with that last one. When you really think about it, it's hard to argue with it. Old preachers used to say it this way. They brought shame and reproach upon the church. Anybody ever heard that phrase? We profaned the name of God. We did not keep 2,000 cubits between us and the holy God who stopped the water 20 miles away when the priest stepped into it carrying the ark. And we need to start. Got an action plan that we need to think about. Maybe it's something you could do for a week. What is it? Well, every, Everywhere you, you, you go this week, how hard would it be for you to ask yourself, is this where Jesus would go? Just do it for a week. Is this where Jesus would go? You might learn something about yourself. How hard would it be this week if, if before you did anything, you ask yourself the question, is this what Jesus would do? 
We talked this morning about Jesus and how he treated Judas who would betray him and how we need to follow his lead and that's what he expects us to do. He just modeled what he told us to do and not uh, in loving our enemies and so forth. Is this what Jesus would do? Could you ask yourself that for the things that you're doing just for one week? Oh, well, what about this one? Every day this week. Could you ask yourself the question, is this what Jesus would say? I mean, I'm not asking you to do it for the rest of your life, just one week. Could you do that? Now, hopefully after this week you get in the habit of doing that because that's what we need to be doing every day. Is this where Jesus would go? Is this what Jesus would do? Is this what Jesus would say? And if it's not where He'd go, it's not what He would do, and it's not what He'd say, then why are you going there? Why are you doing it, and why, pray tell, are you saying it? Because when you do, you know the end of that, don't you? You are profaning that which is holy. You're treating that which is holy as common. You know, if you were to do that for a week, you'd probably find one of two things. You might see you're doing pretty good. You reckon? You might see that you're doing a pretty good job of living your life. And that's great. And I hope you do. But you'd probably also say, well, maybe there's a little room for improvement. A little room for growth. Probably could be. Or on the other hand, you might see that you need to make some radical changes in your life. Might see that. What if every Christian at Midway consistently, on a regular basis, went only where Jesus would go, did only what Jesus would do, and said only what Jesus would say. What if, what if every Christian here at Midway did that? Would it make a difference? Would it make a difference in the way people view the church? Would it make a difference in the way that... that we evangelize? Would it make a difference in anybody's life? <laughs> you know what? I, I'm pretty well convinced that it probably would. But that's what Jesus has asked us to do. We would be doing what He said. What a great and wonderful day it would be if we could just do that. Things that are holy must not be treated as common. The name of God is holy. We can profane the name of God by what we say, by what we do, by where we go. As you look at your life tonight, how far from the ark are you in regard to those things that are holy? Are you keeping the 
proper distance. The 2,000 cubits, the approximately just a little over one half of a mile. Are you keeping the distance? Do you understand that which is holy and that which is common? Well, tonight I hope we at least think about it in a little different way and are more conscious of it so that we can, every one of us, every Christian here, can more consistently go where Jesus went or would go, act like Jesus would act, and do what Jesus would, or say what Jesus would say. Maybe you're here tonight, and as you look at your life, you know there's something amiss that you need to make right. Maybe you're here and you know that you want to become a Christian, want to be, wear that wonderful name. If we can assist you in any way tonight, if you need to come, come right now. As together we stand and sing.